This week on the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, Disappearances. Taylor Swift. Google Plus. And hoaxes. All this and a lot... Hold on, you're not going to plug your new web series, Conspiracism? Well, I would, but it doesn't seem to have worked the last two times. The people don't care, Josh. They just don't care. Well, I do. Go and belly well watch it, I say. If you like this, you'll like that. And that is a money-back guarantee. Not a guarantee. But wait until you finish this episode. Yes, on with the show. The show must go on. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Edison sitting in tandem with Dr. Emma Rx Dentiff on a new sofa. How do you sit in tandem? Well, I don't know, it's we're sitting on the same thing instead of in separate chairs now. I mean, everyone I assume uh, always thought that one of us simply perched on the other one's lap as we... As we, as we Which was true when we were chair. just a podcast. When we mm. weren't doing video, there was a lot of lap sitting going on. And not in a scandalous way, in a not enough chairs yes, kind of way. In an efficiency way. It wasn't particularly efficient though. No. And anyway, it was very, very painful. We do we but we now have the, the whole sort of bench seat arrangement here. Yes, there's been a bit of redecoration on the yeah. set of the podcasters Guide to the Conspiracy. As you can see we now have a sofa. I don't know why I said that with a French accent. A sofa. Although now there is this space between us. Well, there always was, but now there's sofa in the middle of it. Instead of <laughs> I thought you yeah. rub the sofa case. Ooh, mm. come to me, my darling sofa, come to me. And of course, this means nothing to people who are merely listening to the podcast and not watching it in all its video glory on YouTube, but you're lost, quite frankly. Yes, but you're missing out on our wonderful lighting arrangement setup thingamajig shindig fandang. I'm just using mm. words now. I'm you just are. using words. Yep, no, stop it. Uh, so at some point we will have brand new lapel mics and that will benefit the podcast listeners as well as the vodcast yes, viewers. Yes, because you'll but, um, hear the rustling of our clothes as we move around and think, what are they doing physically in that scene? Mm. Uh, if you work in the, the business world as I do, and possibly in the academic world as well, you'll have sat in on more than one phone conference with a person holding with the, with the mouth thing just slightly too close to their nose. So whenever, you, whenever you're talking and they're listening, all you can hear is heavy breathing. The Darth Vader of meeting. Mm. <laughs> so if you're lucky, you guys will get a bit of that as well. But, uh, but not right now. Luke, I am on a Skype call. Mm. That is essentially... That is a quote from The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're going to talk about disappearances of people. Now, you know what you should be doing at this point in time? Disappearing in a puff of smoke? Oh, yeah, you should do some illustrate. kind of fade by some sort taking of smoke bomb. a version of the shot when there's no one sitting here and just making us disappear. Well, I could. But then there's just going to play a chime and then we'll be back here. That would just be miraculous. It's just uh, video magic. It's, video magic. It's the prestige. Good if film. Recall from the film, the Prestige. Very that's good the bit film. When you bring the person back, I was I was given reason to think of Jonathan Creek the other day. Apparently, there's a new one of that just a year or two ago. Yes, yes, I think, which I believe was actually the final Jonathan Creek. There's no talk of doing yeah, more. It's a shame, but it was actually returned to form because oh, if you watch the TV series they did a few years back, they did six one-hour episodes, and it kind of just didn't work because Jonathan had settled down. 
was living in a village with his wife and solving small town mysteries. Okay, so no, Jonathan Creek is about solving intricate puzzles that are completely mm. out of place. Yes, exactly. And this yeah, is the podcaster's guide to the works of David Renwick, who is the writer of Jonathan Creek and One Foot in the Grave. You wouldn't associate those two shows, but they are in fact by the same pen person. Well, you've just blown my mind. And now we're going to blow your mind with some disappearances. Ooh. Yes, disappearances, people disappearing. Now, our long-term listeners, if you can remember all the way back to episode 43, almost, almost 150 episodes ago. We're getting close to the magical 200. The magical 200, yep. Uh, back in episode 43, we talked about mysterious disappearances, and we did the classics. We did Jimmy Hoffa, we did Lord Lucan, we did a couple of others as well. Famous, famous pe- people who famously disappeared and the conspiracy theories around exactly what happened to them. But, um... There have been a couple of relatively high-profile disappearances, and in some case reappearances, uh, in the news lately, and we were sort of looking at them and thought, well, we could stick them in a news update, but there's probably enough to fill an entire episode with them. And it so turns out there's doing. been quite a number mm. of not just disappearances, but odd ends to mm. people. That actually sounds a bit weird, really. Odd end. Yes. <laughs> if I had an odd end, I'd, I'd see the Doctor. You well, I mean, sure that... surely we'd be getting onto the whole... Toadette, oh, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Trump with his Mario Kart, but that's another yeah. matter for another time. Mm. Possibly not this podcast. No. Maybe bonus content. We yeah. might talk about Donald Trump's penis. Mm. That's why you should subscribe to our Patreon so you can hear us wax lyrical about Donald Trump's penis. You know, there's been a whole bunch of people who have disappeared or had untimely and suspicious deaths, and it's the kind of thing that makes you go hmm. And when people go hmm, exactly like that. Hmm. Conspiracy theories are bound to abound, aren't they? Hmm. Conspiracy theories and CNC Music Factory. But we're a conspiracy theory podcast, not a CNC Music Factory podcast. Although I'm Despite now thinking maybe yeah, we, we should actually probably transfer yeah. our, our I have bon mot, our way of doing things mm. to... Modus operandi. Yes, that too. Yeah. Although they 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 weren't a, partic- a particularly good band. No, no. But anyway, so we're, we're, we're going to start in China. Um, we spent the last couple of episodes uh, going on about Russia, and we figured maybe we should take a break from making ourselves an enemy of that particular totalitarian state uh, and make ourselves an enemy of a completely different totalitarian state. Yay! Yes. Um, so the first one, the first one that popped up um, was the disappearance of Fan Bingbing. Now you may not know the name if you've seen the X Men movie Days of Future Past. She played Blink, the character of Blink, the teleporty one in that, uh, which was her first sort of big role in, a, in a, a Western film. But she's a massive star in China. She apparently uh, earned more money than it was Amy Adams and Charlize Theron were the two comparisons there so she she she's she's a big star she is a celebrity she has been in many many films she's a singer she's a a dancer she's an actor um massive social media following and in june of this year she disappeared uh no no word from her no posts on social media no sightings in public and it didn't take long for people to start asking uh where has china's most popular actress gone which is a very good question where Mm. has this actor disappeared too. Yes, so it happened um, 
around it sort of coincided with uh, the giant Chinese government deciding to crack down on um, sort of sort of uh, dodgy well not dodgy but um, unseemly financial goings on in the entertainment industry they um, uh, officially started cracking down on high salaries for actors uh, there were the Chinese regulators uh, capped star pay at 40% of a TV show's entire production budget and 70% of the total pay to all actors in a film. Now, I would notice. like to point out that the notion that they're capping at 40% of the entire budget of a TV show, that's still a lot still of a lot. money going yeah. to the stars. So, I mean, yes, I un I understand runaway costs and the like, but that's still going. You deserve to be paid a lot more than you probably actually. I say I said deserve in the first place. You're being paid a lot more than you actually probably deserve, mm. given that most people can actually get by if they're earning six figure salaries on less than a six figure mm. salary. Truth be told, mm. call me a communist, not a Chinese communist. No, the other kind, a Cuban communist. I don't know. Where do they still have communism these days? China, China. Cuba, April Sun. Mm. Uh, anyway, so, so there was a crackdown on um, actors' salaries and also a crackdown on uh, tax evasion. Um, and this this was the this was uh, eventually once it became clear that you know she she had actually disappeared from um, public life. Uh, people started saying, well, maybe it was something to do with tax evasion because there is a apparently a, a, a common ish practice um, in the Chinese entertainment industry and the Western industry, for as far as I know, um, to have what they called uh, yin yang contracts where uh, an artist would basically sign two different contracts and one in which they were paid a lower amount would be the contract used for tax reporting purposes, and then there'd be another contract for a higher amount, which would be what they actually get. And so it was a way of um, minimising their earnings and therefore minimising the amount of tax they were liable for. Um, and so apparently Fan Bingbing had, um, been, had, had one or more of these types of contracts, and apparently this ended up being what uh, had got her on the bad side of the government. Um, so the the story goes that uh, during her disappearance, she was basically under house arrest um, in China, being given a fairly stern talking to by the government. Um, and so she showed up again uh, three months later, basically uh, full of contrition, um, giving statements about how, how sorry she was for how she'd let down the government and the public, um, and apparently also had to pay around $200 million, uh, 900 million yuan, uh, which which was uh, a combination of back taxes, fines for not paying her taxes, and late fees on the fines. Um, so she two hundred million sounds like a lot of money. It does sound like a lot of money. And yet, often when people are paying these fines, they're they're not being made bankrupt by paying mm. the two hundred million. I'm assuming that's US. Uh, was that was the figure given in a, a New Zealand Herald article? So I think that I, I don't know what the Chinese exchange rate is. I assume it was New Zealand dollars they were talking about. That kind of depends on whether they were co copy-pasting an article from the US or not, well, really. Because, yes. unfortunately, we have dollars. They have dollars. Mm. They're not the same. Dollar. A shitload of money, anyway. It is. It's 200 yeah. million if it's New Zealand dollars or American and I, dollars. And I'm, I'm assuming that she probably hasn't lost her actual wealth. Well, no, I mean, like, again, most popular actress in China, as far as I'm aware. So um, I, I believe she can afford it, but it's still, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not pocket change. Now, this is a, I mean, 
It's a sinister thing, disappearing for three mm. months because the government is keeping you under house arrest. But of course, this isn't as sinister a disappearance as some, is it? No. Because this is the kind of disappearance where you disappear and people end up having conspiracy theories of, oh, what's she done that the Chinese government has made her disappear? But then you get slightly more political disappearances, which are a lot more sinister. Yes, yes, you do. So, I mean, in the case of Fan Bingbing, I mean, there was a political element to it. I mean, a lot of people suggested that this was the government making an example of her, showing that no no one is above the law. That you know, doesn't matter how famous you are, doesn't matter how many followers you have on Instagram. Doesn't matter who appeared in a Hollywood film. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not above the law in China, damn it. Those swanky US celebrities, maybe they can get away with stuff, but not here in China. Um, but uh, they, 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 you could almost say they've graduated a little bit um, to... <laughs> You're saying first class. Mm, to, uh, fr- from disappearing celebrities to now they've disappeared uh, one Meng Hongwei, who was, at the time he disappeared, the president of Interpol. Well, the Chinese branch yes. of Interpol. I mean, that's not, that's not nothing. That's frickin' oh, Interpol. Yeah, yeah. So this is, this is actually a fairly big story here because not only was he the president of Interpol China branch, but also a member of the Communist Party in China. Now, the Chinese government has been for quite some time trying to get members of the party into senior positions worldwide in part so that China has prestige, and also so that China has kind of diplomatic ability to discuss issues where in the past they might just be told, you'll be doing this. When a member of your party is is also a high-ranking member of Interpol, you're in a situation where you can start dictating policy. But the downside to this is that, of course, the problem about being the president of Interpol and investigating crimes that are going on in China of a global, let's say, interdimensional nature. I don't think Interpol deals not, with interdimensional not stuff yet. yet. Not as far as no. we Is that you might actually end up pissing off certain members of the party. And because your service is to the party first and your job second, you can be made to disappear until such time that contrition is shown and you reappear and go, what I did was wrong, and the party is shown that actually they have control over you. Yes, so that has not happened yet. Not yet, because this disappearance occurred last week or Uh, a week before last? End of September, so we're approaching, so I think two weeks ago. Yeah, week before last. Um... So at the, at the end of September, he I think he's based in France, or at least that's where his wife was, uh, but he travelled back to China, um, and then contact was lost with him. Uh, the, the, the last text his wife received was simply a text of a knife emoji, which she took to be a sign of, of danger, that he was in some sort of trouble. And then, yeah, nothing was heard from him. Um, now, Fan Bingbing is not as well known in the West. She's been in the one, uh, the, the X-Men film. She was in the extra scenes they shot for the Chinese cut of Iron Man 3. Um, because that's interestingly, is a thing that happens sometimes now that China is such a big market. Um, certain American films have been actually inserting extra and I've scenes. And I've been, I've been waiting for a chance mm-hmm. to talk about this. There's even a Mr. Bean film that's only ever been shown in China. Is there? 
Yeah. I mean, it's not technically a Mr. Bean film. It's a film about Chinese comedians interacting with Rowan Atkinson as Mr. Bean. So, so he's a major part hmm. as a Mr. Bean character, as, a, as the Mr. Bean character that's only ever been shown in China. Bizarre. Yeah. Mm. So there are, there, not only do you get extra scenes in films for the Chinese market, sometimes you get entire films for the Chinese market. Mm. Which reminds me, I shouldn't go see the third Johnny English film. Because it's apparently the re- second. No, there's a third. Just came out. Was the last one? The th- God, there was another one in between. I, I was only aware of the first. See, the first is terrible. The second is actually not terrible if you watch it on a long-haul flight from one destination to another, because it's actually the kind of perfect watch-on-a-plane film. It passes the time, and it's moderately funny. But apparently the third film is just moderately bad. It's a shame. But at any rate, so uh, the the point is that Fan Bingbing is not known enormously outside of China, and inside of China the government can pretty much control... But when you're the head of Interpol... Different story. Yeah. Now, the Chinese government has admitted that they do have... Yes. They they were forced to actually... Yeah, in custody. But that's basically all they've said at this stage, isn't it? That he is is in custody, he's done something... Bribery, I believe, was the charge. He's been detained on charges of accepting bribes or something like that. But, yeah, very little detail. And the suspicion is that he may not have accepted bribes, but that is the kind of thing which is sufficient to be put into custody in China and is also against the Chinese Communist Party rules Mm. and thus would give them reason to do whatever they're doing to him at this particular point in time. Yes, so soon, very soon after China issued their statement saying that they had him in custody, Interpol then released a statement saying that he had resigned as president of the Chinese branch of Interpol. Um, and that, uh, and even even that, I don't know if it was a case of he he was allowed to get in touch with them to say actually I resign, or if China had just said oh by the way he says he yeah. resigns I don't know there, but um, yeah so at the moment he he is still very much in limbo. Um, and again I mean it seems like it's a case of someone being made an example of showing that you know the the, the government can get to anyone essentially no one's no one's above the law. Um, and, and also like the crackdown on on, on uh, film budgets and tax evasion. Supposedly this is part of a campaign to stamp out corruption and like. But I mean, who knows if if it's if it's if that's actually the the real reason, or if it's just him getting on the wrong side of the Communist Party. Well, yes, and of course these are the kind of questions that go hmm, mm. which is why people end up going. The stories which are told by these people after the fact are covering up the actual political machinations going on in the background, whether it be an actor being made an example, or the Chinese head of Interpol being made to show that the party is more important than your other political affiliations. Mm. So we'll be interested to see. I mean... um... Fan Bingbing released this, this statement um, where she said things such as uh, 
Throughout these days of my cooperation with the taxation authorities investigation of my accounts as well as my companies, I have realised that as a public figure I should have observed the law, setting a good example for society and the industry. I shouldn't have lost my ability to govern myself in the face of economic interests leading myself to break the law. And a bit further down she says, uh, without the great policies of the party, that being the Communist Party that in charge of China, and the country, without the love of the people, there would be no Fan Bingbing. So it's very much... Uh, 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 towing the party line sort of a thing. So it'll be interesting to see if Meng Hongwei is released, or if they hope he'll, we'll all forget about him. Probably less the case. When you're the head instance. of Interpol, yeah. yeah. Uh, with, with a, he'll he'll come out with a similar. Sorry, I you know I, I I've wronged the government and I must uh, you know uh, atone towards them and the and the Chinese people. Whether it'll be, yep, I done bad. Um, anyway, back to my life at Interpol, where I will coincidentally not be uh, pursuing crimes in China nearly as as, as um, efficiently as I was before. Who knows? Um, it's still very much up in the air. Which leads us, I guess, to the the most recent, I think, and possibly most ominous um, disappearing that's happened recently, being the disappearance of Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah, so this is a interesting story for a lot of reasons, mm. actually. One, no one's entirely sure what's happened apart from the fact that someone's disappeared and rumours are rife they've been murdered and their body dismembered. But also for the sheer fact that he's an American citizen mm. who died in Turkey, but technically, if he is dead, on Saudi soil. Yes, so the details... So it's very complex. Mm. Uh, this man, he's a, a, a Saudi writer. Uh, he's been very critical, apparently, of um, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia. Um, he was last seen visiting, as you say, the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Uh, he, apparently he he's uh, planning to get remarried, and so he had to go to the Saudi consulate to get evidence, uh, doc document documentation proving his previous divorce, so that he could then get remarried to his uh, Turkish fiance. So um, he went inside, surrendered his cell phone, as is normal, I think, for going into consulate consulates a lot of the time. His fiance waited outside for him for eleven hours. Um, at, at which point, having not heard nothing from him, she went to the police, I believe, in Turkey. Um, so Turkey's been investigating, um, and I don't know... They haven't released anything officially official, have they? But there have been a lot of leaks and information coming out. Yes, yeah. yes. And it's important to note that the initial position by the Saudis was to claim he'd never been to the consulate at all, which, of mm. course, was then contradicted by the girlfriend, saying, well... Kind of saw him walk inside. Mm. And indeed, security camera footage, I believe, captured him walking inside, and no footage has been found of him leaving. Um, so the, the, the information coming out of Turkey from the investigation that's been going on suggests that they believe he was killed in the embassy and his body was then taken somewhere else and disposed of. So there's been a lot of talk of apparently um, 15 uh, Saudi nationals flew in from Riyadh on that day and then flew out again that very day. Uh, there were two teams, apparently one of a nine-person team who checked into a hotel, went to the consulate before uh, Khashoggi went in um, and then 
uh, six-person team who showed up later, the implication being one of them was the taking the body away team and the other one was the cleaning up the mess team or something like that. Um, and so the, the, the situation is very much evolving. Uh, this afternoon I read a paper, uh, a news article in the paper, which suggested that the, um, they, they had sort of tracked the flights that these uh, Saudi nationals had taken um, tracked them from Riyadh to Istanbul, from Istanbul Airport to the consulate and back again, um, had tracked a, uh, uh, what am I looking for, convoy, tracked a convoy of diplomatic vehicles from the consulate to, I believe, the basement of the, the head of the consulate's house or something like that. Um, so th there's been a lot of, um, uh, if, if these things are true, of course, because again, I don't think they've been, the statements have been made officially, but um, it's all looking very dodgy. It um, is, yes. And then America's started to come into play as well. Well, yes, because he's a US citizen. Mm. And America and the US have an interesting diplomatic relationship. Sorry, Amer um, America and the US. I mean, mm. that's a, I mean, it is a very At the moment, yeah. that's actually kind of yeah, true. Yeah, yes. um, but the so Saudi Arabia and the US have an interesting diplomatic relationship. So the Trump administration, of course, has been actually quite pally with Saudi Arabia for the last year and a bit. And now people are going, if a US citizen went into a consulate and was murdered in the consulate, that's a diplomatic stouch. Mm. Where if you kill a member of the opposing team, and uh, someone who belongs to a different country, then that's not. I mean, killing people is bad. Yes, I, mean, I think we all. I think we all agree. Killing mm. people is bad. Killing people on diplomatic ground is also really, really bad. That's extra super bad. Yes, killing someone from a different nation state on diplomatic ground—that's super bad. I mean, the first thing was bad enough, but now you've just made it really, really mm. bad because you've created a diplomatic incident. And so the question now is, is the Trump administration going to follow this up or not? And that's a really quite mm. interesting question, given how powerly the Trump administration has been with Saudi Arabia thus far. Yes, especially Jared Kushner, apparently, is, is quite, quite powerly with um, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who's apparently referred to as MBS a lot of the time. That's That's how... That's how chummy they are. They've got a little little three-letter acronym. Um, and so apparently the Crown Prince um, has been calling the White House on more than one occasion, basically asking to speak with Kushner as well as other people um, and wanting to... I, I, I don't think it's known specifically, but the suggestion has been that he wants to either uh, know what... Be, be clued in on what the US is planning to do about this or to seek to influence them in some way. I'm not sure. There's a specific act in America whose name I've forgotten and I didn't put down in my notes, um, which a bunch of senators have invoked, which is basically if something dodgy has happened overseas, we're required to look into it or something like that. Um, so that that has been invoked, but I don't think the president's followed up on it yet. Um, so things are still very much up in the air. Nothing's been proved. Things look very dodgy. Um, and the, the, the politics around it all get murkier and murkier by the moment. Yep. It's really quite fascinating. And, of course, leads to a whole bunch of conspiracy theories because mm. the reason why he was likely killed 
is due to the kind of journalistic investigations mm. he was engaging in. And the worry now is that, as we're seeing with these disappearances and these probable murders, is that a lot of authoritarian states are flexing their muscle because the historic don't-do-this-openly thing seems to be kind of disappearing from politics at the moment. We seem to be in a global state where people can go, we can just get away with making people disappear and murdering them on our ground because we know the big powers aren't going to do anything about it. Mm. Um, and that brings us to our, our final disappearance of the episode, which and we, we've gone the full scale from um, disappeared and released to disappeared and probably going to be released to disappeared and probably not going to be seen again to disappeared and now, unfortunately, we know... Uh, was indeed killed. Uh, we talk about the Bulgarian journalist Victoria Marinova. Um, so she was... I don't have it written down. Where was she found? In Rus, right. which I've actually been to. Yeah. Uh, and that back in the day when I was living in Romania, and Romania being the neighbour to Bulgaria, to get from... Bucharest to Sofia by bus, you have to go through the border town of Rus. So I've been through Rus. Mm. I committed no murders in Rus. Well, that's good to know. Um, but I may she, have committed murders elsewhere, but not in Rus. She was found to have been raped and murdered, um, which uh, by itself, obviously, is bad enough, but um, it's, it's something of a pattern in that she is the third journalist who's been... Um, critical of the EU to die in the last year. Yes, and so she was quite critical of Bulgaria. And Bulgaria, like Romania and Hungary, have interesting governments with slightly corrupt policies. And she was in she had just started a brand new kind of current current affairs style show where her first and what turned out to be her last broadcast was investigating potential corruption in Hungary with respect to EU funding. And then she happens to be in Rus where she strangled, raped and killed. Mm. Yes, I see critical of the EU before. I should have said critical in the EU uh, of her governance. So uh, like this, we also have uh, Daphne Karuna Galiza, who was a Maltese journalist, uh, who again also had been known to expose corruption. Uh, she was murdered uh, by a car bombing um, in October of last year. And um, Jan Kuciak, a 27-year-old reporter with the um, Slovakian website Actuali, I assume that's how it's pronounced, .sk, um, he was shot dead along with his fiancée uh, fiance, um, in an attack linked to his reporting on tax evasion, and that was in February of this year. Um, so we're starting to see, I, I guess, a slightly dodgy pattern emerging. Yes, I mean, on their own, these deaths... I mean, car, car bombing actually seems that's, inherently that's, suspicious. Yeah, that's, yeah. But that's not something that just happens. Unfortunately, rape and murder still occur, and other forms of tragic deaths occur. But when that's three journalists all of whom have been investigating corruption in their government with respect to the EU, you do start to see a pattern. Mm. And when you start to see a pattern, you end up going, are these politically motivated hit jobs? Well, indeed. 
And that sort of brings us to, I guess, the conspiracy theory angle, because we haven't we haven't explicitly talked conspiracy theories yet this episode, but I think it's kind of been implied right the way along when people um, who are in some way critical of or, or, or have in some way made themselves an enemy of a government and they disappear... Um, it's it's no real stretch to start thinking that perhaps some sort of governmental conspiracy is behind it. And especially, especially when we're talking about states that veer towards the, the autocratic and totalitarian, it would be fair to say. Yes. I, fortunately, when it comes to places like China or Russia or Romania or Hungary or Bulgaria, these are nation states where... Politics is somewhat dirty, and people in power don't like to be criticised. And so you have situations where you might want to make examples of people, and you might make examples of them by making them disappear, as we get with the Chinese example, or you might dismember a body as you find out with the Saudi Arabian example. Mm. But these all appear at least on the face of it, to be examples of governments doing things, but then not actually saying they're doing it openly. Well, no. I mean, the, the official Saudi position, for instance, is that uh, Mr Khashoggi, uh, that they don't know. It's been very much, oh gosh, we're, we're, as, we're as keen to get to the bottom of this as you are. Um, but they obviously admit nothing. Um, other than once they were forced to admit he did enter the building once the security footage came out. But, yeah, that, there's been full denial there. Um, I don't believe anyone from the Chinese government came out and said, uh, we arrested Fun Bingbing and gave her a good talking to because we didn't like what she's been doing or, or because we wanted to make an example of her. But um, she did disappear for a while and then she did come out... Um, uh, full of contrition and, and isn't it nice good things that about she's, she's really, really anti-tax evasion now, wouldn't mm. it? Actually, that is good. People should not but, be you know, evading tax taxes. But quite possibly putting people under house arrest to compel them to make that statement is not the most ideal way of doing things. Mm. And I suppose also, if, if we're talking about dodgy states doing dodgy stuff, that's that's one thing. But then what about the less dodgy states? Does... The fact that this happens elsewhere, could that lead us to be more suspicious of um, uh, governments, say, in the Western world, where we like to think of ourselves as being a little more democratic and open? Well, yes. I mean, people do point out that there are mysterious journalistic deaths in the US all the time. And people end up going, well, you know, maybe it was a carjacking accident, or maybe it was drunk driving, but also... Maybe it was the CIA getting rid of someone that the president at the time did not like. Mm. It's not beyond the bounds of possibility. Yes, I mean, it was the US that introduced us to the term extraordinary rendition in the wake of 9-11 and the war on terror and all of that. Bizarre. Although, of course, that was taking foreign nationals to their black sites somewhere else, wasn't it? So it's yes, although, of course, from then the we discovered that they were trying to find legal rationales as to why they might be able to do it to their own people. Mm. By mm. declaring them, say, as enemy combatants and thus robbing them of their nationhood. Mm. So, I mean, yes, it's, it's the sort of thing that can make us naturally suspicious of governments and the sort of thing which can make us not want to dismiss conspiracy theories completely out of hand 
when we hear about this sort of stuff. It also makes you think that maybe we shouldn't be doing a podcast talking about what China's doing to dissidents, or what Saudi Arabia is doing to dissidents, or what Russia does to dissidents, if we ever want to travel to Saudi Arabia, Russia, or China. Well, yes, that's probably true. So maybe we should just stop talking now, and uh, go into the new segment. Yes, I think that might be the best employment decision we could possibly make. Employment? Mm. Future decision. Yes. Gen- decision in general, I think. It's the best decision we could possibly make. Employment or otherwise. Yes. Breaking, breaking conspiracy theories in the news. Welcome to the news. This week's Reddit headlines from our conspiracy and our conspiracy theory are... Kanye West is being paid by the GOP. CAA document confirms our reality is a hologram. Is the US government brainwashing the nation to slowly build a galactic army? Uh, Galactic, not galactic. Uh, Sorry. Uh, And Banksy is not a single person. But enough of the internet. We start with Tay-Tay news and the fact white supremacists are having to shake it off with their fascination with Taylor Swift. Yes, Taylor Swift came out all political last week endorsing the Democrats uh, and pissing off the white supremacists and Aryans everywhere. Which sounds a little odd until you get a bit of backstory. Several years ago, alt-right trolls decided to own the libs libtards. Yes, by making out that Taylor Swift was one of their own. They spent months and months creating memes of Taylor Swift images which carried white supremacist slogans and viewpoints. Andrew Aglin of the Daily Stormer was at the forefront of this mimetic movement, describing Swift as the Aryan goddess Taylor Swift, Nazi avatar of the white European people. Now, remember, this was a white supremacist plot to own the libtards. Swift was not a white supremacist, had not said white supremacist things, uh, and presumably was not agreeable to the whole fandango. But now she's publicly supported the Democrats uh, and said she would never vote for someone who wasn't in support of all Americans. Um, The white supremacists who, remember, made this all up as a joke are now angry she is not the Aryan Aryan goddess they made her out to be. Andrew Aglin is possibly the most annoyed of the bunch, having written a thousand-word diatribe where he states, <coughs> Taylor Swift is not an Aryan goddess. That was a viral marketing campaign to make the media look retarded and to make us look clever. Swift is just another stupid whore like all woman. Charming fella. But also... How much of Taylor Swift's image as a probable conservative was marketing, and how much of it was actually a reflection of a direction that she personally wanted to go in? Which, as various Antifa-related websites have pointed out in the reporting of this, indicates Anglin drank his own Kool-Aid. He's both at pains to point out the whole Aryan goddess thing was made up, and that Swift somehow, having never espoused those views, has still resiled from them. Mm. Meanwhile, Republicans have revealed themselves to be dinosaurs in response to Swift's endorsement of the Democrats, uh, claiming that her fan base of 13-year-old girls can't vote, so it doesn't matter. Except Swift has been a charting artist now since 2004, which means her 13-year-old fans then are now well above voting age. Seems Republicans really are stuck in the past. Well, I guess they are the kind of people who still listen to CDs and thus haven't heard any of her new work via the streaming services. Worse, they probably collect vinyl. Oh dear. Oh, very dear. Yes, meanwhile, Google 
Still doing evil. Yes, a minor story, but also a big one. Google, that company which famously removed the requirement to not do evil from their charter, had a massive data breach and didn't tell anyone about it because they feared regulatory punishment. Google+, Plus, the social network Google started and people are still surprised actually exists, had a security flaw, wherein businesses using the API could harvest quite a lot of private information of individual users. Google discovered the flaw while working on identifying security issues in their own software. However, Google decided against publicizing the data breach because they weren't sure any data had ever actually been leaked. Now, by not sure, Google means that as they only keep logs of activity for two weeks, no one had harvested any data in that two-week window. That doesn't say data wasn't harvested previously, just that it hasn't been harvested now. Uh, add to this that Google have been very proactive in publicizing the security issues of non-Google products. This means it's a bit rich for Google to decide to not admit to their own failings. But their legal team thought the US government might push back uh, and introduce regulatory frameworks if they admitted the accounts of some half a million users. Of course, keeping data breaches like this secret is precisely why regulatory frameworks are important, and which is also why companies like Google don't want to admit to security issues in the first place. Yes, now, this is in some respects a minor issue. Half a million users is small change compared to, say, the likes of Twitter and Facebook, and the data that was publicly available via the API was of limited use. But it's proof positive once again that corporations cover things up because they care more about shareholders than consumers. Conspiracies actually are common when it comes to protecting your profit margin. Which is why we promote full-strength communism on the show. Might as well give all the power to the devils you know, rather than the so-called corporate angels. Yep. Uh, finally, grievance studies and an academic cover-up to promote social constructivism. Em, you're an academic. What's all this about? Well, three academics, Helen Pluckrose, James Lindsay, and Peter Bogossian, spent a year writing fake papers and submitting them to journals in order to show that a certain element of the academic world is host to what they call grievance studies, a field whose goal is to, is to problematize aspects of culture in minute detail in order to attempt diagnoses of power imbalances and oppression rooted in identity. In order to show this, they wrote 21 papers they felt were outlandish and broken, and found that a good third were published. So this is a more contemporary SoCal hoax? Yes, it's also a sequel to an earlier hoax by Lindsay and Bogossian, where they got a paper published in a pay-to-print journal. At the time, they said that that proved the social sciences were infected by bunkum theories, but as people pointed out, getting a paper published in an outlet which doesn't do peer review and does require you to pay for the pleasure doesn't really tell us much of anything. So then, does this hoax show anything, and what's the conspiracy angle? Well, the conspiracy angle is simply that the hoaxes believe the social sciences have been taken over by social constructivism. The idea that all truths are constructed and thus social. Their reading of social constructivism, not mine. And academics are unwilling to A, challenge such constructivism, let alone admit to its prevalence. Basically a cover-up by academics of an agenda in the university system to blame issues on white men and European culture. As to whether the hoax actually shows what they think it shows, no. Go on. 
Well, aside from worries about whether they actually chose the best journals in the so-called fields they were taking aim at or not, the process of writing and revising those papers turns out to be the biggest problem. You see, in order to write those papers, the hoaxers had to read and copy the style and arguments they were trying to debunk. So the fact that they think they wrote shoddy papers doesn't mean that their papers were bad. You can call this the devil's advocate issue of academia. Most of us are trained to be able to give a spirited defence of positions we disagree with because to show an opponent's position as bad requires being able to adequately describe it. The hoaxers might well disagree with the paper's conclusions, but people knowledgeable in the domains of the journals the hoaxers were published in said the published papers were not obviously terrible and sometimes actually plausible. Awkward. Add to this peer review itself. Aside from some monstrous academics, most of us who peer review papers want authors to succeed and get into print, so we tend to offer constructive feedback even on papers we think aren't very good. The only way for an author to improve is through such feedback. So the fact the hoaxers say that their supposedly terrible papers got good feedback, which apparently shows the system is balked, doesn't show that at all. At best, it shows that reviewers are polite even in the face of terrible arguments. So this hoax doesn't sound too convincing then? No, it's a mess, frankly, and says more about both the hoaxers and their supporters than it does the field of so-called grievance studies. The fact that people are willing to automatically jump on a report and say, I knew it, without asking, does this show what it claims to show, is a little embarrassing for the sceptics of identity politics and the like. Well, human nature and all. And talking about human nature, greed. Yes, greed and the lust for filthy lucre means that if you want more news updates this week, you'll need to subscribe to our Patreon to hear more. This week's bonus episode features talk of Simon Bridges and the endless leak inquiry here in Aotearoa, how people are now very confused over Brett Kavanaugh's position on the US Supreme Court bench, and scepticism over that shredded Banksy print. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. You've been listening to the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. It is written, researched, and performed by Josh Addison, a.k.a. Monkey Fluids, and MRX Dentith, a.k.a. Conspiracism on Twitter. This podcast is available where all good podcasts can be found, as well as iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. It can also be watched on YouTube. Just search for the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, or, if you happen to be technophobic, consult the auguries. You can support the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy via our Patreon page, as listed in the podcast description, or just by searching for us on Patreon. You can also support us via the Podbean patronage system, if that is more your style. You do you. If you want to get in contact with us, why not email us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And remember, Soylent Green is Meeple's.